Good evening, and Merry Christmas. I'm going to be focusing this sermon on verse 14. The whole passage was read, but I'm just going to focus on verse 14 tonight, and I would like to pray uh, with you all that God would bless it to each of our hearts. So would you pray with me? Father, my heart is already warmed, singing these words of praise these beautiful melodies reminding us of the longing, the waiting, the groaning, and finally, the hope that has arrived just in time. When half spent was the night, we thank you for sending forth your Son. We pray that you would allow his light to shine in our midst this morning. We know that you want us to know you, or would you, have ne- you would have never sent your Son. But we also know, Lord, that this truth of your son's coming must come home to our hearts. So bring it home to our hearts, just like you brought Jesus to this world. In his name we pray, amen. There's a story of a huge procession of people with banners in hand, giving honor to a very distinguished engineer who had died a 100 years Prior. And in the midst of this massive procession, there was a group of peasants with a small banner in hand on which were written the words, He was one of us. He was one of us. So you see, these were citizens of the tiny village of this great man's birth. And they had come to be part of this procession, to do him honor. They had a right to call him one of them because he, the one so highly honored, he was really one of them. Now, Jesus has done infinitely more than all the virtuous people in the world combined. And he became a man. And he inhabited our town. Because of this, the picture comes to my mind. A picture of us with joy, with signs in hand on Christmas saying, he was one of us. He was one of us. John, one of Jesus' closest earthly companions, and the one who wrote the verse that we're going to be considering this evening, he wrote it to help us make sure that we don't miss out on the chance to do Christ honor, to praise the one who came to be one of us. So in a sense, I want to say, let us let John help us lift up our banners this evening by considering three profound truths. One, God became like us. Two, God lived among us. And finally, number three, God is showing himself to us. God became like us, or as our text says, the word became flesh. This is the most compact statement in the entire New Testament when it comes to describing Jesus' incarnation, Jesus, God coming. And so it's just this compact statement 
But it's important for us to note this word became. He didn't, he wasn't made. In John 1 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, and has always been. But the one who was became. He became like us. He took on flesh. Now, that word, that phrase, the Word, is a really profound, kind of mind blowing idea, but it can be boiled down in a sense to this that Jesus is the eternally divine word, God's message to humanity. You wonder, what does God want to say? You look at Jesus Christ. This is what God wants to say. What Jesus has said and what Jesus has done, this is what God wants to say to the world. And yet, we're all, if we're honest, a little hard of hearing, aren't we? And so what we're celebrating this evening is that God bent down really far to speak into our ears. But we're not just hard of hearing, we're also hard of understanding. And so he can speak into our ears, but it's hard for us to understand it. That's why God, you could say, translated his message so that we would understand it. The word became flesh. The eternally divine word took on flesh. And we know the story, right? by the powerful and miraculous work of the Holy Spirit causing conception in a virgin's womb. Now, I don't know exactly how this happened any more than you do. We're just told basically what Mary was told, that it was going to be a work of God. Don't know exactly how it happened, but we can be sure that it happened. And we can be sure of why. It happened. He took on flesh to dwell among us, to die for us. This is the most amazing event in human history. What we are celebrating this evening. It's so ordinary on the one hand, yet so extraordinary. It's ordinary in the sense that he was born and some of those events happened in a way that could have been unnoticed like a snowflake falling to the ground. Yet it was so extraordinary that God saw to it that it was powerfully attested to. That the arrival of his son be very clear that it was the fulfillment of centuries of prophecies spoken about him. That there would be angelic hosts announcing the arrival of the newborn king. That there would be a star, like no other star, guiding the way and lighting up the way into his presence. The word became flesh. But does this, the word becoming flesh, does this imply that he stopped being God? Good answer. (laughs) I'd want to say she's well taught, but I don't, I would be a little biased here, I think. Uh, No. Thank you, Zoe. No. Jesus never, not even for a moment, ceased to be God. However, His ordinary appearance was significantly veiled by his divinity. I mean, by his, his divinity was significantly veiled by his humanity. The fact that he took on human flesh, as the great Christian hymn put it, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. His divinity was veiled by this flesh that he took on. 
But we also know that Jesus' divinity often shined through his humanity. But it's still hard. Think about this. It's still hard to spot a king who humbles himself and lives among and dresses like peasants. Our king was like this. As it says in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, it was Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. That is, the word became flesh. We must take some time this evening to kind of try to realize how big of a step this was for humanity. I couldn't help, as I was meditating on this text, to think about this great event in American history. On July 20th, 1969, the American astronaut Neil Armstrong put his left foot onto the surface of the moon. And when he did, he uttered these famous words, that's one small step for a man, or man, it's debated, one giant leap for humanity. One small step for a man, but giant, giant leap for humanity. It is one big step for humanity. Everything else that Jesus came to do could be done because he first took on flesh. When Jesus took his first big step on earth, imagine how significant that first step was on the moon. I think about Jesus' first step on earth. When he came, when he took that first big step on earth as man, it was an eternally significant leap forward for mankind. Think about it. What would it mean if Jesus never took that step? No incarnation, no good news. People would continue to be separated from God because of their sin. People would remain on their way to an excruciating eternity. People would go on sitting in darkness, hoping in vain for a sunrise, only to get a perpetual night. No incarnation, no hope. No word made flesh. There's no one to absorb the punishment that we deserve. No word made flesh. There's no one to defeat death by his resurrection. No word made flesh. There's no one to provide a righteousness that we couldn't get on our own. No word made flesh. No access into the presence of God. In other words, the word becoming flesh is the beginning of the good news. Without it, nothing good can follow. But here we are, celebrating Christmas. Why? Because the Word did become flesh. Because God became like us. And because God became like us, God can sympathize with us and he can suffer for us. He can sympathize with us. Think about this. Every bit of Jesus' earthly life virtually can apply to us. I mean, even from what he experienced 
coming out of his mother's womb is what we experience coming out of our mother's womb. Think about the fact that he grew in wisdom and stature, and he had to go through all of these changes. Think about his emotions and how he experienced the full range of emotions, joy and sorrow, and often mingled together. Or think about his weaknesses. He was hungry, thirsty, tired, weary. He felt such things. He was one who felt what we felt, suffered like we suffer, was tempted as we are tempted. Because he became like us, he can feel with us. I want us to let that sink down into our hearts a little bit deeper this Advent. We have a God who can sympathize with us. We also have a God who could suffer for us. See, there's one big difference. When we think about Jesus and his life and all the ways that he can sympathize and identify with us, there's one massive difference between us and him. And that is he was sinless. He was without sin. He was like us in every way, yet without sin. And because of this, the word who became flesh could be our substitute. The word who became flesh could be our righteousness. The word who became flesh, he could conquer death so that it wouldn't hold us. The word became flesh so that he could provide access into the presence of God so that he could offer eternal life. There's a story of a little girl who cried out to her mother from her bedroom. Mommy, I'm afraid to be in my dark room alone. Her mother replied, It's okay, honey. The Lord is with you. She called back, Yes, but I want someone with skin on. Jesus is God with skin on. And he became like us so that we would never have to be afraid again. God became like us. Consider the second profound point. God lived beside us. Now, actually, it uses a more unusual word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It can have different ways of translating it. For example, you could say that he pitched his tent among us. He made his home or dwelling among us. He took up residence among us. Or maybe my favorite, he tabernacled among us. That's the sense of it. When we hear that word dwelt, he dwelt among us, we're meant to hear an echo from the Old Testament when God was dwelling among his people in the wilderness, the people of Israel, and he dwelt with them in a place called the tabernacle. And so we hear about it in places like Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. It says this, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture so that you can make it. So let's slow down for a second because not everybody's familiar with the tabernacle, right? So God makes this tent. He designs it. The people build it to his specification, and it's a tent. It's got two rooms. There's kind of a holy place, and then there's the most holy place, or sometimes called the holy of holies. And that is a place where God and his presence would dwell in a unique way. 
people were still sinful. And so he had to make a kind of intermediate step, a way for him to be in their midst, kind of as close as possible. And so he dwelt among his people. He tabernacled. He pitched his tent among his people. And the idea is like he dwelt with them. And that's why there's all these furnishings in the tent as well. Kind of some of the normal stuff, only a lot more expensive uh, in the house that's going to house the Lord. Uh, but the point was that he was living among his people. He's um, He is dwelling. He is tabernacling among his people. And after they had built it, it says in Exodus 40, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God's presence is uniquely present in the tabernacle, this place where he would dwell among his people. And verse 14, when we're meant to hear this, he tabernacled among his people when the word became flesh. We're meant to hear that God is dwelling among his people in a more personal way than he ever has before in history. This is an awesome moment. And it has often moved my heart within the last couple years, and especially in the last several weeks, to trace out this theme in the Bible, this theme of the temple throughout the Bible. And one of the things I've come to see, and it was gripping me even as I was seeing it, was God desires to be near his people. And taking it one step further, God has always made a way to be near his people. And I mean that, like, he has always made a way. Throughout history, in every segment of history, God has made a way to be near his people. And here, he has done it in a unique way. And when the scripture says that he, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we're meant to hear Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament tabernacle and the temple. In other words, the tabernacle and the temple were just foreshadows of a more permanent place to meet with God. Or a more, you could say, personal way to meet with God. He tabernacled among us. Jesus is described as the tabernacle, the temple. In fact, here it's saying Jesus' body is likened to the Old Testament tabernacle right here. He be, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In Colossians 2 verse 9, listen to this. In him, the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. The fullness of God dwelt in the person of Jesus Christ. The temple was filled. Or think about John 3, verses 29, uh, starting uh, actually in verse 30, where is it? Okay, starting in verse 19. Just a, just a chapter later, chapter 2, verse 19, actually, it says this. Jesus answered the Jews. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Okay, those were just fighting words at the time. In fact, that's why they responded the way they did. It's taken us 46 years to build this thing. And you're going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days? Then we get this side note. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about his body. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the meeting place of God. And Jesus' death 
makes it possible for us to be in the presence of God. This is one of the most important things that we're going to see today. Connecting this idea of Jesus tabernacling among us and being able to be in the presence of God. There's no other way to be in the presence of God. And Jesus' death makes this possible. Do you remember when Jesus died? That whole scene playing out and some of the supernatural events that happened surrounding it and even as it's happening? Listen to Matthew 27, verse 51, as Jesus is dying on the cross. It says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The curtain in the temple, this curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place, the way into the most ultimate uh, manifestation of God's presence at the time, this temple curtain was torn top to bottom when Jesus died. We're meant to put those two things together and go, Jesus' death, access to God. Jesus' death, access to God. And this is the connection that's made in Hebrews 10, verse 20. Listen to this. It says, By the new and living way that has been opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. As Jesus' flesh was torn, as he died on the cross for us, the temple curtain was torn. In other words, access was granted into the presence of God. You see, he dwelt with us so that he could die for us. In Christ, we see the curtain. At the cross, you hear it tear. And when you hear it tear, you're meant to hear an invitation. An invitation into the presence of God. What God is saying to all people in the world right now is what Jesus said when he was here. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was the temple. He's the meeting place of God. His flesh was the curtain that was toward so that access could be made. And God is saying, the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that he could go to the cross, so that his flesh could be torn, so that a way could be made. And so, this invitation is follow the way. Follow the truth. Follow the life right into the presence of God. But God is saying there's only one way into the presence, and that is through my son, Jesus Christ, in his torn flesh. But again, would this have ever happened if he didn't first take that one big step forward? And that one step was a leap for all of those who put their trust in him and in him alone and in his torn flesh to have access to God. That is what God is welcoming us into this evening. And it's easy to doubt God's desire to be near. Maybe you struggle with that too. It's kind of doubt God's desire to be near. But this is a word for us a word of confidence for those who have put their trust in Christ, a word of confidence for us. Let me put it this way. God wants you to let the cry from the cradle be your battle cry against those unsettling doubts about God's nearness. Like the fact that Christ came, that God dwelt among us, this fact we're celebrating tonight is meant to banish your doubts about God's desire to be near his people. Trust him. 
Let the tear of the temple curtain give you courage to rip up your doubts about God's desire to be near you. This is healing for us. It's healing for the embattled believer that struggles with doubts about God's presence and his nearness. Well, it's easy to doubt God's desire to be near, but it's also easy to be irreverent when God is near. Pause on that for a moment. It's one thing for him to come near. It's another thing for his presence to be honored. And we know in the scriptures that this theme of the temple kind of keeps carrying on. And at the next stop, after God manifests his presence in Jesus, is that he manifests his presence in people. That Christians are called temples of the Holy Spirit. And so I want this sacred evening where we celebrate that he is one of us and his nearness to us and the nearness that has been granted to us through his death. We want this to be also a reminder to honor his presence when he's near. We are called to live in a way that's not careless or compromising, but in a way that lives like he is near. That it shapes the way that we speak, the way that we prioritize our lives, the way that we work. And here's the thing. The more that we honor his presence, the more we get to see and enjoy his glory. And this leads us to our last point. We talked about how God is, God has become like us. God lived among us. Now I want to close on this point. God is showing himself to us. God wants to show himself to us in a special way, in a way that he's never done it before. And here you read the Old Testament, and I'm thrilled reading stories in the Old Testament of how God has showed himself to his people. Like the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, manifesting his glory among the people of Israel. But I want to tell you this evening, I'm not jealous of them. Because God has manifested his presence in a much more profound and pronounced and personal way through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what we are celebrating. God wants us to see his presence in his son, Jesus Christ. He wants us to show himself. And that's why the text says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And this word only is really important because it's speaking about Jesus as the only, the unique, the one-of-a-kind Son of God, the unique way that God is going to radiate his presence and his glory in this world. We have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father. Now, as he seeks to show himself to us, he wants to show himself to us in a way that we can bear. This is important to get. Like, why did he take on human flesh? He wants to show himself to us in a way that we can bear. His divine glory, it did flash forth, like I said earlier. He's he's veiled, right, in flesh, but he's still fully God, and so we see it break out, his divinity break out. We see it in his miracles. When he turned the water into wine, just one chapter after the chapter that we are in, it shows and it actually says that this was the beginning of many signs where he manifested his glory, where he showed more of himself to people. 
We see this in a very unique way in the Mount of Transfiguration, where he brings a few of his inner circle disciples up with him, and he literally is transfigured in his divinity. It's as if the veil is pulled back, and they see the brightness of his divinity in that moment. It breaks through. It breaks through at times. But his humanity is kind of a gentle veil that helps us be able to bear the sight of God. Like sunglasses. It takes the edge off the sun so that we can see for where uh, we can see the glory of the sun without losing our eyesight. He wants us, he wants to show himself to us in a way, way we can bear, but also in a way that we can grasp. He wants to be understood by us. The glory is seen in a special way. This is fresh for me. His glory is seen in a way that it wouldn't have been seen if he didn't step down. If he didn't take on human flesh. You know, one of my kids would ask me, like, do you think, Dad, do you think that the Piers Pioneers could beat the Minnesota Vikings? <laughs> Some of the Piers players are like, yeah, I think we got a shot. <laughs> as soon as you get to AJ, we're confident. I like that. <clears throat> like, do you think that? And I'm like, you know, it's just hard to understand because you watch, you watch NFL players play against NFL players. And you're like, well, how good are they? But I think the Piers guys, at least the humble ones, would uh, say if one of the Vikings showed up on the field on a Friday night, trust me, you would notice that a Viking was playing that day, right? Like there'd just be something about stepping down, not to the college level, all go all the way down to the high school level, and you would come to realize just how good that player actually is, wouldn't you? And for those who are playing against him, you'd feel it on the next day, right? There's something about coming down, Jesus coming down, that helped us see who he is, see more of his glory. Jesus' humility magnified his majesty, his true greatness. Think about it. We didn't realize how rich he was until we saw how poor he became. We didn't realize how perfect he was until he lived among sinners like us. We didn't realize how wise he was until he left the elites in his days speechless. We didn't realize how compassionate he was until he touched the leper. We didn't realize how powerful he was until he calmed the storm from inside the boat. I didn't realize how loving he was until I watched him bleed. When he came down, it allowed us to see his glory in a way we would have never seen it, in a way that we could grasp. And he wants to show himself in a way that is powerfully personal to each and every one of us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, dot, dot, dot. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The gospel begins with this lofty description of the eternal divine word and then shifts to the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. John, writing this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, understood that this is the design for every generation of human beings, for them to see 
his glory. And this is John's way of saying, do you want to meet him? The eternal divine, do you want to meet him? The one who made everything, do you want to meet him? The one who inhabits eternity, do you want to meet him? See, the apostles understood that this was, this glory was meant to be seen in every generation. And Peter put it this way, knowing full well that many of us wouldn't get to see and experience it exactly in physical terms the way he did as an apostle, right? So listen to the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1 verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. You've seen it. And the apostles are inviting everybody else that didn't have the exact same experience as them into this reality by faith. And for John, the one who's writing this, this is not just a hypothetical thing, a distant thought for him. John started his first letter, 1 John in the Bible, he started his letter by saying, we have seen him. We've touched him. We've walked with him. We've experienced him. We've taken in the word made flesh through our senses. And our joy is not complete until you experience him by faith. Until you get to share in the fellowship that we have long enjoyed. And what I want to say in closing tonight is this. We can rightly come and celebrate God taking on human flesh, God becoming like us, God dwelling beside us, God showing himself to us. But that reality is meant to become personal for each and every one of us. And so I want to encourage you tonight. He's the God of heaven and earth. He's a God who hears. He's a God who's come near. He's a God who desires people to really personally know his presence. I want to encourage you tonight. If you don't really know his presence truly, like personally in your life, I, I want to encourage you, call upon his name. Call upon him today. In the name of his son, say, make this real. Come near to me. Help me to see how you have come near to make a way for me to enter into your presence. Make that reality of your son's death that made a way into your presence, make that real to my heart. Call upon him. And if you call upon him in that way, he will make it powerfully personal to you. He'll make it precious to you. He'll make it real for you. When we were not like God, God became like us. When we could not be near God, God came near to us. When we could not see God, God showed himself to us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice at the gift that you have given to us into every generation since those original shepherds peered into that lowly manger and beheld your glory 
in the face of your newborn son. Lord, we praise you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We praise you that you tabernacled among us, Lord Jesus, so that we could see your glory, that you were born so that you could die, so that you could make a way. Lord Jesus, we do declare tonight that you are the way and the truth and the life. No one comes into the Father's presence apart from you. But we rejoice. We rejoice that that curtain has been torn. We rejoice in the access that you have granted. We rejoice that we can be known and that we can actually know you. We rejoice that your presence coming to us is a down payment of the presence we get to enjoy for all of eternity. Lord, I pray that you, even as we continue to sing and continue to celebrate, that you would be pleased to make this powerfully and personally real to each one of our hearts. Help us, like those peasants in the procession, take up our sign and go, he was one of us. Make that real to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.